Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, in fact, I will cover a show in Virginia, in the city of Richmond at the Virginia Rep. It was a brand new musical called Atlantis. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits I attended during the month of April in 2019. There will be four from Broadway, including the plays Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, the Shakespeare sequel by Taylor Mack, Lucas Nath's play Hillary and Clinton, and Glenda Jackson's return to Broadway after last season's triumphant Tony Award-winning performance at Three Tall Women. This year, she takes on Shakespeare's King Lear. We've got a brand new musical that opened on Broadway this month, Town, and we'll also talk about that one. And I'm going to cover a slew of off and off-off-Broadway shows, including those at Abrams Arts Center, the American Theater of Actors, Ars Nova, Dixon Place, the inaugural show from a new company, Duende Productions. We'll go to the Metropolitan Playhouse, the New York Theater Workshop, the Paradise Factory Theater, and also one of my favorites, The Tank. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started on today's episode. Let's begin at the off-off Broadway arts incubator, The Tank. This show is entitled Unfolding. Various shades of white with light tan accents are illuminated when you take a seat at the tank. There is a tree. Three very large triangles. Do they represent sails? The ocean? Additional material on the floor covers the width of the stage. Is this paper? Linen? The imagery is dreamy and serene. Are we looking at a diorama? A frozen landscape? This mystical fairy tale will incorporate travel. A tale of one woman's journey through life will be unfolding. Margarita Blush conceived and directed this visually splendid story. Three women, also dressed in white, narrate this wordless show using moving performance and puppetry. As manipulated, the handcrafted puppets are beautifully rendered, expressive individuals. They walk and climb trees. Exquisite shadow imagery fills in meticulous details. The ambiance is timeless and magical. A woman's life will unfold before your eyes from birth to the inevitable. Along the way, she will grow and learn and love. Her hair will change styles. So many details are rendered through this extraordinarily fine storytelling. The show has both a romantic sensibility and a playful wittiness. Recognizable moments provide happy laughs. 
As we travel with this woman through life, all types of unfolding occurs. A life unfolds and becomes more expansive. The material on stage unfolds to reveal delightful surprises. This woman unfolds and her life transforms before our eyes. The levels of wonderment produced by this artistic team never ceased to amaze. Dimitar Dimitrov and Patia Dimitrova created and designed the set and puppets. Their spectral aesthetic pairs seamlessly with this enchanting celebration of the gift of life. Amir Khosrapour composed the compellingly simple yet lushly evocative music which gorgeously underscores a truly magical tale. Puppetry is alive and well all over New York City these days. Unfolding is a joyous example of this fine artistry. The Tank is an arts incubator that presents over 800 performances annually on its two stages. With free performance space, artists such as these can have an outlet to express their creative visions. Usually the works are unique. Often the works are memorable. Occasionally they are magical. Always they are worthwhile in support of the many talented artists looking to develop and share their vision. With unfolding, that vision is superbly realized and a captivating experience. Now to a different off-off-Broadway offering about a woman and her life, but this one from a very, very different perspective. The play is called Whore. When you enter downtown's Paradise Factory Theater, the stage backdrop suggests a large scrapbooking canvas. Pictures of children in the wilderness. Happy, peaceful images. They are layered and have texture. Some of the edges are uneven around the borders, reminiscent of photographs from long ago. Boldly titled in capital letters, Whore will be heading down the path of memoir told with the passage of time. Suzanne Tufan is the writer, performer, and producer of this piece, her first full-length play. The story is one woman's journey of survival and transformation. From the age of five until adulthood, Miss Tufan is chronicling a history scarred by an overbearing father. He is portrayed as a conservative man who is deeply into astrology and meditation. The wearing of lipstick and other infractions seemingly connotate whore in his mind. That oppression is the fundamental conflict pursued in this therapeutic exercise of analysis, healing, and creative expression. The tone is an odd yet interesting combination of gleefully childlike and bitterly hardened. As an actress, she learns to use music and dance for creative expression. That outlet is also employed here in her original songs and expressive movements. Unfortunately, the story feels very sketchily drawn. Intentionally shocking blurbs, like discovering masturbation at seven years old, are hurled before quickly moving on. At nine, she begins to have fantasies about boys peeing on her. A throwaway comment or thematic revelation? Hmm. I thought about that line longer than the play did. Relationships which obviously have had some major impact are discussed, but not explored in any depth whatsoever. As a result, 
the play seems like an outline rather than a multi-layered scrapbook. Lindsay Hope Perlman's direction efficiently moves this story along and critically gives the material some gravitas. Miss Tufan is a tremendously winning stage presence. There is simply no storytelling beneath the headlines written and performance indulgences. Did her father believe she was a whore? Was he puritanical or just mean? Did her mind create this drama from a guilty conscience? Is this personal story meant to shine a light on society as a whole? An astrological wheel chart is repeatedly consulted, illuminating nothing. Which are the five most important moments? Why not explore them for more than a nanosecond? If you can imagine it, or understand the reference, Whore feels like the Donna Reed show updated into the present. There is a lot more sexual frankness and sharing, for sure. The main character just smiles throughout and keeps us far away from seeing a lifelike person. While that may have been a stylistic choice, it separates the actor and the audience rather than connecting them spiritually. In a theatrical monologue which aims for richly revealing, we instead see a talented actress shoehorning her skills into an ineffectively told memoir. Next up, an extremely unique offering, a piece called Tilt. An exceptionally creative set design is on display at the Abrams Art Center. Entering the theater for Tilt, a large wooden pinball machine has been built. A multi-piece, theater-length wooden track zigzags overhead. At the start of the show, a ball will travel on that track high above the audience, making its way to the machine. It's the ball return. The program notes that a typical pinball game gives the player three balls. In Cervantes' Don Quixote, the hero goes on three sallies, or journeys from home. Tilt uses that framework to present what it calls a visceral experience of a delusional brain. A pair of legs appears to be playing the pinball machine. We only see the bottom half of a person tap dancing. A side cabinet opens and piles of wood fall out. Wood is the medium by which this story will be told. Fans of woodworking and puzzles will be enchanted by the creative combinations assembled. Naturally, you would expect a windmill. How and when will it come together? The bells and dings make you feel like you are inside a pinball machine. I saw images that suggested bumpers and flippers. Movement is always swirling and spinning to put the wooden components together artistically. Music underscores the dance-like performance. By the time the third part, third bowl, or third sally occurs, you can understand use of the term multi-ball. As a show, Tilt feels too long and is very slow moving. The pacing appears to be deliberate, though. Sometimes the assemblage takes more time than is advisable to hold our interest. It starts to feel repetitive. More tapping, more spinning, and more music, with the feeling of a storyline lightly treading through. The creation of the show and its delightful sets and props must have been great fun to create. Leaving the theater, we remarked that we would love to see a player musical performed using this memorable aesthetic. This level of creativity certainly deserves a high score.
And now it's time for Glenda Jackson's take on King Lear. Famous for being a great, or perhaps the greatest, powerhouse role for an actor who can dominate a stage, King Lear arrives on Broadway with last year's Tony-winning Best Actress Glenda Jackson in the title role. At 82 years old, she does command a stage. She goes about the business of descent into madness efficiently. I cannot say hers is a leer for the ages, because the production is simply not good. The stage is adorned with a garish gold lobby. Miriam Buther did the scenic design. A ruler with moralistically challenged daughters and son-in-laws conniving for their slice of the empire. It's so blatantly Trump Hotel that it is boring. Too many productions this year are referencing the same target. Original compositions by Philip Glass are played by four musicians underscoring a world of privilege. One of the fool's speeches proclaims, quote, And bawds and whores do churches build, then shall the realm of Albion come to great confusion. At the end of this damning soliloquy, the fool, played by Ruth Wilson, pulls up her pant legs to show socks with the American flag. Exclamation point or thematic excess? Your call. Sam Gold directed this very uneven production. King Lear is certainly juicy enough to satisfy if the acting rose above the setting. That is not the case. In an attempt to provide more gender neutrality to the casting, the usually fantastic Jane Hootyshell portrays the Earl of Gloucester. The performance is flat and her lines are flubbed all over the place. With one of the moral centers of the play this ineffectively realized, there is a collapse which cannot be recovered. King Lear's daughters Goneril, that's played by Elizabeth Marvel, and Reagan by Aisling O'Sullivan, well, they're a mixed bag of unrelated concepts. Miss Marvel's characterization was fun and very contemporary. Miss O'Sullivan's was one on earth from various countries and different accents with more than a whiff of desperate housewives thrown in. There are some pleasures to be enjoyed on stage through this long slog. Petro Pascal's Edmund, the illegitimate son of the Earl of Gloucester, delivered a fully realized villain. John Douglas Thompson was spot on as the king's loyal and selfless aide. In the role of banished son Edgar, Sean Carvajal was my favorite performance in both speech and physicality. I have to add that Oswald's death scene, as portrayed by Matthew Mayer, was a high point. The proceedings were so boring that the levity was a welcome relief. Now, for very important information. If your tickets are located far to the right or left of this stage, you will miss key scenes. I had trouble, and there were five people sitting to my right. These were not obstructed view-priced tickets. Did no one think that the entire audience might want to experience this whole play? It's not as if the directorial choice was so phenomenally interesting. These scenes are essentially characters just sitting on a bench. Dozens and dozens of theater goers were unforgivably shortchanged. I thought Glenda Jackson was truly marvelous in last year's Three Tall Women. Here she shows us that she can run a difficult marathon and finish, if not win. Overall, however, this production is a sorry mess and cannot be recommended. Next, we go to the new Ohio Theater off-Broadway and the play 
June is the first fall. The Mid-Autumn Festival is celebrated by the Chinese and other Asian cultures in late September or early October. With a full moon, this family gathering has the feeling of Thanksgiving, a gathering together of loved ones. When this particular family finally completes emigrating to Hawaii, they cannot wait until fall to get their mooncakes and rejoice. For them, June is the first fall. From that moment on, they begin their tradition and the family's festival is always held on this much earlier date. At the beginning of Yilong Louis' play, Don is seated on an airplane and a woman is talking to him. The scene is a dreamlike memory. Don is returning home to Honolulu's Manoa Valley after a 10-year absence. He now lives in New York. With the passage of time, memories crystallize and cannot be shaken. Memories are scattered throughout this endearing study of culture, family, and personal growth. Don's sister Jane and her boyfriend Scott live with her father David. Jane is played by Stephanie Kuo, Scott by Karsten Otto, and the father David by Fenton Lee. Scott works in the father's restaurant. David left China to find a better life when his children were very small. Years later, they were reunited and this house in America became their home. When it was time for college, son Don heads to the mainland, far away from the burden of expectations. While the situations explored in this play are not unique, the relaxed pace gives this material a very fresh smell. Jane hangs her sheets outside, rather than using the dryer, as sun-dried sheets are soothing. She wants her brother to have clean linen to sleep on when he arrives. As we will learn, Don does need soothing, and healing, and closure, and a push forward. Don is a gay man who fled his home as so many others do. New York City can be welcoming, but also can be cold. Don's long-awaited return ignites memories of his dead mother. Chun Cho plays her ghost in the many memory scenes. Her performance is a perfect mix of eccentric foreigner, naturalistic mother, and spiritual sounding board. The play nicely evokes the important imprints left during one's impressionable youth. June is the First Fall features a good cast of actors. As Don, Alton Alburo is a believably confused, irritably defensive young man who still needs to toughen up. Stephanie Kuo and Carson Otto played the couple with the easy chemistry of a playful romantic relationship. The family patriarch, as one would expect, is the person whose opinion matters most. Fenton Lee thoughtfully inhabited him. His personal beliefs and cultural influences believably conflicted with the love of family and the wisdom of age. As performances continued, I expect the comfortable familial vibe would grow even richer. In the relatively small New Ohio Theater, the creative team has done an excellent job. With evocative scenic design by Gene Kim and creative lighting by Cha Si, this family's healing materializes in the home, on a plane, and during a hike through the valley. Michael Castellola's sound design noticeably contributed to the various locales which were employed in telling this tale. June is the first fall, addresses the ghosts of the past which linger in our heads. In a pivotal scene, 
we hear, I know there are times that we all feel like we are trapped in a loop. Are there paths to grow and move on rather than feel held back with no escape? Well directed by Michael Liebenfluft, this story is smoothly paced to unravel this family's secrets and hopes and learnings. Now let me tell you about Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. In their new, larger off-Broadway home at the Greenwich Theater, Ars Nova presents Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. This play was created by the Mad Ones and their ensemble, similar to the formula used for the hilarious Miles for Mary a few seasons ago. The former was about a group of teachers assembling in the school lounge to discuss a fundraiser. This play concerns a focus group of parents giving feedback on proposed sequels to a beloved children's television series. The entire theater has been reconfigured to look like a community center. The excellent set design was by Yushin Chen and Laura Yelenik. When Jim arrives to begin setting up a table with blank name cards, he walks over to the kitchen and dials the rotary phone. We are firmly in the 1970s in this subtly stinging yet firmly comedic examination of human perceptions. Six parents of young children are providing feedback to Dale, the moderator. Jim is the scribe and recorder of the discussion. Dale informs the group that Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is only going to be on television for one more year. The lead actress is retiring. Before moving on to the sequels, the group is asked to comment on the existing series. What do we like about the show? Dislike? How does it relate to your family? If you were to offer a piece of advice, what would that be? Three women and three men are providing roundtable feedback. At first, they are tentative as one would expect when strangers get together. Personality traits do emerge. Cece is admittedly bossy. Wayne is a flannel-wearing blue-collar type. As conversations flow, opinions are similar and different, creating many levels of tension. The audience observes this wholly naturalistic meeting. Acutely directed by Lila Niegenbauer, Mrs. Murray's Menagerie hardly seems like a play. The words are memorable and effortlessly believable. Each character's body language adds volumes of information about their personalities. In a very close call, my favorite performance is Stephanie Wright Thompson's Gloria. A bit more timid than the others, she comments, That's what I was going to say. When the conversation turns to breakfast, she feels the sting of judgment from the others, at least in her head. We see defensiveness and simmering annoyance on her face and in her reply. The completely realistic atmosphere adds layers of complexity to the focus group discussion. How are we alike and different as parents? What is an effective punishment for misbehavior? Which of the show's many puppets do your children relate to the most? One of Mrs. Murray's friends is described as flamboyant. How we see others, our biases, and our prejudices pepper all of this remarkably clever dialogue. In Miles for Mary, the characters were sharply drawn caricatures of school teachers. The conflicts were heavier and sharper. This play is more modulated during confrontational moments, which makes sense. Teachers who work together for years would have a natural rhythm to their interactions based on a shared history. 
complete strangers talking about themselves and their children would logically be more guarded. Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is exceptional theater. The entire cast is superb. A creative idea has been carefully cultivated to bloom by these actors and this theater company. Inventive and hilarious, the play succeeds in elevating a very specific situation into a psychological study of ourselves and how our viewpoints shape how we see the world. No lecturing, grandiose speeches, or pontificating needed. Just watch, listen, and think. Which sequel do you prefer? Candace's Cabinet or Teddy's Treehouse? Take a seat and find out. Laughs are guaranteed. Do you want another review about a puppet show? Well, this month you're in luck. Dixon Place presented Punch Kamikaze Inferno. Back in 2007, the term Punch Kamikaze was created for an Alice in Wonderland puppet festival. Artists are assigned sections of a book, film, or historical event with no limitations on puppet style or interpretation. The pieces are presented in order, but are not coordinated in any way. In the performance I caught, Drama of Works hosted a take on Dante Alighieri in Punch Kamikaze, Inferno. In 11 segments, the first part of the 14th century epic poem, Divine Comedy, is reenacted. In this story, Dante is guided through hell by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. The puppeteers tackle the descent into hell, followed by the nine circles of torment. The personification of the devil finishes the tale in The Emperor of the Kingdom of Despair, performed by Tradewinds Theater and Hunter College. The show is a smorgasbord of styles and varying quality. Limbo is the first circle, which contains the unbaptized and virtuous pagans. Since I was baptized as a child, I probably won't land here. I do consider myself a quite ethical pagan, so time will tell which circle the sorting hat will choose for me. In this section, monks sing about their splendid, splendid castle while holding candles as the puppets perform on a castle of seven high walls. Lust, a.k.a. Hollywood, is a solo piece by Patrick Coma Walensky. He meets Madonna in a bar, and, after many drinks, she compliments his lovemaking expertise. Waking from that dream, and with Morgan Freeman as his Virgil, he covers the typically Hollywood slimy types, represented with standing paper cutouts, including one of Hugh Hefner. Greed is retitled as Hoarders and Spendthrifts, Virgil Tours, Your Guide to Hell's Kitchen and Beyond. In this creative concept by PlayLab NYC, a guide narrates a walking tour of the since-renamed New York City neighborhood. Hell's Kitchen is now called Clinton. We meet a beggar. The puppets employed here are larger-sized versions of the Rock'em Sock'em robot toys. The two battlers embody a Republican and a Democrat. Both are appropriately ridiculed. My absolute favorite chapter presentation was Fraud by Exploding Puppet Productions. Instead of a puppet show, 
there was a video of a young girl who was coloring. She was creating a drawing of the word fraud on a piece of paper. Her commentary is adorably funny. Eventually, we see, briefly, some Winnie the Pooh stuffed animals beneath a comforter. The short piece ends with her asking, Is Trump in jail yet? A puppet show fraud indeed that was. At the end, a giant multi-headed creature representing Lucifer is assembled by a large troop. Arms are painted flexible tubes. There are three heads as told in the Inferno. It is obviously munching on people. The show ends with eerie, slightly crazed laughter. This experimental show is clearly not for everyone. Two women bolted early on. Were they fleeing metaphorically from their personal circle of entertainment hell? Some sections were less accomplished, while others reached for a creativity that was only partially successful. The audience was very supportive to them all. Punch Kamikaze is probably best when you have an affinity for the subject matter and are willing to support offbeat diversions from artists cultivating their talents. Down to Richmond, Virginia we go, to the Virginia Rep. The show is Atlantis. A brand new musical called Atlantis opens on the idyllic island with the song We Rise. Soon, an outsider washes upon the shore and exposes a dark secret that has been lurking within paradise. Matthew Lee Robinson wrote a tuneful, very Disney-esque score. He co-wrote the book with Ken Cernelia and Scott Anderson Morris. This ambitious production has been staged at the Virginia Repertory Theater in Richmond. Atlantis kicks off with breakneck speed, which, unfortunately, makes it impossible to understand the plot other than superficially. Act 1 is a bombardment of songs. There are five ruling clans, fire, water, earth, air, and ether. In the far superior second act, the musical slows down to take a needed breath. The clan distinctions can be followed. More dialogue is employed, which allows a compelling story to emerge more clearly. The firstborn children are preparing for some sort of important traditional ritual. While that is occurring, Maya discovers a foreigner on their shores. He is incarcerated, and his presence must be kept a secret. Why? That is the mystery which unfurls and sets up the intrigue. When Ara arrives, the island begins tremoring. Does his presence anger their god Thera? The marketing material for this show indicates that this story takes place in the days prior to the island's disappearance. There seems to be plenty of conflict to explore, but the wildly frenetic staging by director Kristen Hanji from Rock of Ages, well, the staging shoots for spectacle. Disney musicals may be of varying quality, but you always know what is happening and why. Jason Sherwood's scenic design was interesting and nicely complimentary with Amy Clark's costumes. I never imagined Atlantis to be a combination of groovy, earthy garden with technological flourishes, such as circular astrological charts. The setting and how it was used was both creative and a fun interpretation. Caden is played by Julian R. Decker. He's a firstborn son and Maya's best friend. He sings one of the best songs in the show, 
Let's start a war. In a musical where most of the lyrics are about feelings, this particular number felt integral to furthering the plot. This character is particularly torn between what he was taught to believe and an uncomfortable emerging truth. When he participates in the group ritual, his dance is rigid precision. You can see the intensity of getting the motions perfect. If that exactitude spread throughout the entire stage to all the oldest children, the moment would have been even more impactful. The themes explored in Atlantis are certainly relevant to today's young people. Do I believe what I've always been taught? Should I be open to change? Should we trust our leaders in what they say? What is truth? In order to thrive as a culture and community, are uncomfortable sacrifices needed? Are they justifiable? These are heavy subjects that poke through the murkiness of this musical now and then. All new musicals, though, need time to find their sweet spot. The drama and plot developments in the second act add some welcome gravitas to a show which reaches far too often into a bag of oft-used musical comedy hijinks. In addition, a dramatic scene near the end is difficult to comprehend from what came before. Interesting questions and themes worth pondering are raised in Atlantis. Slowing down, excising a few repetitive songs, and clarifying the book can help pull us further into this tale. In a month containing two puppet shows, we also have two Shakespeare productions. This one, Twelfth Night. Over the last five years, I have seen four versions of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, or What You Will. Mark Rylance was a mesmerizing Olivia on Broadway. The combination of two well-regarded theater companies, Classic Stage and Fiasco, presented a less successful production last year. Bedlam did two versions in repertory with the actors switching roles. One was called What You Will or Twelfth Night, with both a simple set and costumes bathed all in white. This same aesthetic is on display with Duende Productions in their inaugural show of this oft-performed classic. White is a smart choice to define a canvas where gender identity is fluid. The twins, Sebastian and Viola, are separated in a shipwreck. Disguised as a man named Cesario, Viola falls in love with Duke Orsino, who is in love with Countess Olivia. Olivia thinks Cesario is a man and falls in love with the disguised Viola. Adding to that love triangle, several characters conspire to convince Olivia's pompous steward Malvolio that she is interested in him. Written as a Twelfth Night Christmas entertainment, the original would have included music. In this production, Feste the Clown, played by Olivia Vessel, strums original music on her guitar, and there are good songs throughout. If music be the food of love, play on. The play is performed in only one act, a very long time to remain seated on relatively stiff off-off-Broadway folding chairs. For its first production, Duende's founding artistic director Amy Gaither Hayes wanted to create a bare staging to, quote, bring focus back to the language, unquote. I'm not sure this intention is truly unique, but the eight actors in this play were committed to the Bard's words with very simple props 
and minimal costume changes. Lines are certainly played with, such as the humorous reference to fishmonger hugger mugger crap. This energetic cast appears to be relishing the opportunity to dive headfirst into their broadly conceived characterizations. There is a lot of scenery being chewed here. Check that. The scenery is non-existent, so it must have been chewed already. When this play's famously hilarious scenes do occur, those decisions ensure funny will indeed happen. The cast is visibly sitting throughout this production on the sidelines. As was the case with last season's fiasco interpretation, the cast is often laughing much louder than the audience. That effect can be fun, but can also seem like a distracting and forced laugh track. Whichever your opinion, when Jim Ireland's fun-hating puritanical Malvolio is on stage, you cannot help but be mightily amused. This tattling, power-hungry schemer's comeuppance is one of the show's high points. Seth Rue nicely fills the double bill of Sir Toby and Sebastian, distinguished by different accents and wearing a hat or not. Everyone has memorable moments. I especially enjoyed Richard Busser's intense Duke Orsino, Alexandra Bonacio's captivating speech when Antonio is accused, and Kalila Hobby's delightful viola. Ms. Hayes directed this production and also starred as Olivia and played Valentine. Her performance was, I presume, intentionally more subdued than the vigorously emotive acting by the rest of the cast. As a result, this version of Twelfth Night seemed a bit out of balance. That is not uninteresting, just different. The other, more unfortunate problem is that cleverness trumped clarity. If you've never seen Twelfth Night before, I am not sure this is the right place to jump in without pre-reading a synopsis. With only one act, some of the language is seriously rushed. Conceptual creativity is usually entertaining. When it overshadows storytelling, however, the mission cannot be considered completely successful. I look forward to Duende's next effort. For its first outing, the team assembled some impressively talented and well-matched performers that were seemingly given ample freedom to bring their characters to life. With more focus on the core storytelling, the creative flourishes will be even more appreciated. I'm excited to tell you about a new Broadway show, Town. When the musical Town begins, entrance applause is encouraged and given. We are joining a party of sorts. There will be a toast to the world we dream about and the one we're living in now. Persephone leads the way, and she sings that she is living it up on top. As Hermes, the patentedly suave stylishness of André de Shields will guide us through an old tale from way back when. Originally written as a concept album in 2010, Anais Mitchell's brilliantly conceived folk opera was staged off-Broadway in 2016 at the New York Theatre Workshop. The core of this show and two of its stars, have traveled uptown after a stop in London last fall in a production rejoicing in originality, soulfulness, and luminescence. The show is now firmly set in America, with a New Orleans vibe 
Miss Mitchell's multi-genre score resonates as a sumptuously rich patchwork of jazz, ballads, and folk rock. Uncannily for our times, she wrote the song Why We Build the Wall many years ago. There's no pussyfooting around this direct commentary on today's America. We build the wall to, quote, keep out the enemy. Poverty is the enemy, unquote. The greed of capitalism is a major theme flowing throughout this show. Hades runs a tight ship at hell. The faceless factory workers toil away in servitude. Orpheus offers a counterpoint to life's purpose, singing a song that brings the world back into tune. The beauty of a flower and the promise of spring is juxtaposed against the clang of heavy metal machinery in the cold dead of winter. While the story is faithful to Greek mythology, placing it as a mirror to our world today allows Hadestown to be not only a great musical, but one that is exactly of the moment. Interestingly, the staging is somewhat concert-like, with old-school microphones often employed. This sad tale still exists because it will be repeated again and again, no matter what the time period. Quote, If no one takes too much, there will always be enough. Unquote. Well, that's the never-realized mantra of human society. Each of the five principal performers are superb in their widely diverse musical performances and embodiment of character. Orpheus is a naive innocent and a dreamer. As portrayed by Reeve Carney, he is a balladeer, equally modern and timeless. His high tenor reaching into falsetto is in direct counterpoint to Hades' lower-than-low baritone. As the tale goes, Orpheus falls in love with Eurydice, played by Eva Noblezada, whose beautiful voice is haunting as she makes bad choices in the song Gone, I'm Gone. Patrick Page's Hades is married to Amber Gray's Persephone. They are hereby anointed couple of the year. His deep voice is eerily evil. When he sings Hey Little Songbird to Eurydice, the line, I could use a canary, sends recognizable shivers of misogynistic privilege. Persephone gets to live it up half the year above ground before having to fulfill her matrimonial promises in the underworld the rest of the year. Ms. Gray excels in projecting these divergent states of happiness and sobriety. You want her at every party. Three fates swirl around the story through song, commenting on and questioning the destiny ahead for these mortals. The entire ensemble and David Newman's choreography are astonishingly memorable. Especially impactful is the very tall physical presence of Timothy Hughes. A member of the Workers' Chorus, Mr. Hughes is the three-dimensional embodiment of the imagery from an industrial art deco painting. The last time I recall the casting of a specific chorus member this remarkably unforgettable was Jim's Bortlesman in the original company of the still-running Chicago Revival. If all of these performances weren't enough to recommend Hadestown, the seven musicians on stage render these various melodies with great style. Brian Dry's trombone playing garners deserved applause. All of the creative elements are in harmony, including the costumes by Michael Cross and the unique sound design by Nevin Steinberg and Jessica Paz. 
Rachel Hawk's set and Bradley King's lighting design evoke a saloon-type atmosphere before plunging us into the underworld. The effects used to create that magic are refreshingly simple, spectacularly realized, and magically transporting. It's everything you could ever want for this show. With Rachel Chofskin's brilliant direction, the visual wonders are enthralling. Town lands on Broadway dreaming of a better world. I cannot imagine there will be a better Broadway musical this season. Run. Continuing my descent downward. The next play, The Harrowing of Hell, was presented at the American Theater of Actors. In the week before Easter Sunday, I've already taken a trip to Town on Broadway. I followed that plunge with another descent into the underworld. The Harrowing of Hell is a play from the 13th century, which has been adapted and modernized by director Dr. Jeff S. Daly. One of the first English language plays, its creation is unknown. Found in three surviving medieval manuscripts, this work was likely a popular mystery play. In the Middle Ages, Bible stories with accompanying music were an early form of theater performed in traveling pageants and churches. I'll rebrand this podcast, Theater Reviews from My Pew, to accommodate this particular entry. For this production, four distinct works are performed, the last of which is The Harrowing of Hell. Period music separates each section, which creates a contemplative feeling. Given my love of all things medieval, and the final season premiere of Game of Thrones, I decided to try a theater company I've never seen before. The Fall of Angels is the first play presented. Dating from the 14th century, this story is part of the York Corpus Christi cycle of 48 mystery plays covering sacred history. The text used here is a modernization of the original from the 20th century. This selection conveys the creation of the world and the fall of Lucifer. From high up on the stage, God condemns him with a cleverly simple effect of tossing a red sheet down upon his body. Written by an African-American in 1907, a poem entitled The Soliloquy of Satan is performed next. Satan tells the story of his fall from heaven. The ensemble play demons, tortured souls, and heavenly spirits. Selections from the 2nd century Gospel of Nicodemus describe the harrowing of hell. On the night of Good Friday, Jesus broke down the gates of hell to rescue the prophets and patriarchs imprisoned there. Here, the ensemble are monks, outfitted in red robes as they recite quotations dating from a 19th century translation. The fourth and final scene has Jesus triumphantly descending into hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Salvation has been brought to all the righteous since the beginning of the world. That's all the way back to a leaf-wearing Adam and Eve. In Middle English, the play's opening lines are, and I'll do my best to pronounce Middle English here, Ale herknath to know, a strife wollen tellen o, of Jesu and of Satan, though Jesu was to helle egan, forte vake teneis, and bringen em to pares. I know I butchered that, but let's move on. 
The rhyming scheme is typical of this period. For this particular production, the lines were translated to, All here hearken to me now, a contest will I now avow, between Jesus and of Satan, when Jesus down to hell's gate ran to find his comrades in a trice and bring them back to paradise. Connor Cheney played God in the first section and performed the prologue and epilogue in The Harrowing of Hell. His performance was big and very enjoyable. The exaggerating gestures and booming vocals felt appropriate to a religious story meant to inspire and likely frighten uneducated souls during the Dark Ages. Christopher Yu's masked Satan was fun, and Benjamin Baru's Jesus was calmly heroic. I appreciated the opportunity to experience this historical artifact as an intellectual curiosity. The production, however, is very off-off-Broadway. The actors are quite young, and in a few cases, they're inexperienced shows. Did I really see stage fright? With a shoestring budget, Terry Prudeau's all-black set construction, framing the burning fires of hell, accomplished an appropriate mood. As far from off-off-Broadway as you can get, the play Hillary and Clinton on Broadway. On a Sunday night in January 2008, Hillary Clinton and her campaign manager Mark are in a hotel room. The New Hampshire primary is two days away, and the poll numbers look bad. Mrs. Clinton complains that the vultures are circling. Barack Obama has offered her a position as his running mate if she drops out of the race. Hillary and Clinton, the new play by Lucas Nath, is a fictionalized character study of this famous woman and what makes her tick. We all know the general plot outline. Hillary is running for president and will not succeed. We will see her failed candidacy and her troubled marriage to Bill, the 42nd president of the United States, and her philandering husband. A story of ambition and drive in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds, Hillary and Clinton is a thrilling dive into the head of this woman, covering a topic that has been exhaustively played out over and over again it is hard to imagine how Mr. Nath has mined comedic gold from this material. Famously, Bill flies into New Hampshire at his wife's request, wreaking havoc in his wake. He is not sure she should continue running for president, telling her, don't let them see you as a rotting corpse. She doesn't have his personality. Instead, she is cold, stubborn, and guarded. With him playing a tack dog by her side, they will be stronger. Quote, Everyone wants a mommy. Everyone wants a dog. With us, they get both. While Hillary and Clinton deals with politics, the play is not a political one which takes sides. This is a play about a woman who does indeed come off as guarded. This playwright conjures a glimpse inside her brain. That view is neither flattering nor negative. Better than that, it is believably detailed. You feel sorry for her. Her defensive fortress is understood. When the pit bull appears bearing her fangs, you recoil again. This 90-minute play is so effective because we all have our long-held opinions about these people. Barack Obama is the fourth character in this play, but the tension he creates happens long before an appearance on stage. 
Having placed third in the Iowa caucuses, Mrs. Clinton is reeling. Her anointment to the highest office in our country is not so definite as she and her campaign would like to believe. We've heard this all before, and still it is impressively riveting stuff. The action takes place in a laboratory-like shell of a hotel room, nicely designed by Chloe Lamford. As usual, Laurie Metcalf is terrific as Hillary. The performance is emotionally rich and does not resort to mimicry at all. At one point, she is seated, with Bill standing behind her. I actually thought I saw Hillary's face, not Ms. Metcalf's. As her husband, John Lithgow is wonderfully annoying, portraying the man whose glory days are well behind him. This play makes a case for this couple as quintessential American opportunists, but also as ravenously greedy, self-absorbed, power-hungry loners. Is there no hurdle they cannot climb? After last year's fantastic revival of Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, Joe Mantello has once again brought an intimate character study to remarkable life. Zach Orth is unforgettable as the beleaguered campaign manager Mark. Peter Francis James' portrayal of President Obama is instantly recognizable and interestingly edgy. All of these people are political sharks. It's just through different personality lenses that we see them. Lucas Nath is a supremely gifted playwright, and the writing of this piece is so good that there is not one lull in the action. Whatever your political persuasion, Hillary and Clinton is highly recommended. The Marquis states that this play is primarily a comedy. If you are a political junkie and actually pay attention to presidential politics and the interminable slog through the primaries, this grand entertainment should equate to an electoral college landslide. One of the plays I was most looking forward to this season, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, is next. Leaving Broadway's Booth Theater after seeing the often very funny Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, Radio Song by the group R.E.M. came to mind. The particular lyric? The world is collapsing around our ears. I turned up the radio, but I can't hear it. The song was a call to action for artists and DJs to communicate more important messages to the masses. In this comedy, Taylor Mack has created a similar rallying cry to artists about the pervasive savagery within our world. Quote, Do we pause or spur it on with centuries of applause? Having never seen or read the Shakespeare play, Titus Andronicus, I decided to watch the Julie Taymor film Titus in preparation. The film is overlong, intermittently fantastic, campy, violent, and boring. I'm glad that I watched the movie, though, before sitting down for the sequel. While not a requirement, additional background adds some understanding and fun to these shenanigans. Julie White plays the renamed Carol, a fairly small character in the original tragedy, but part of a major scene. Knowing her backstory adds to the merriment on stage. She opens the play with an absolutely hilarious monologue, which sets the tone for the raucous grotesquerie that follows. In the smallest part, 
Miss White nearly steals the show from her co-stars Nathan Lane and Kristen Nielsen. When the curtain rises, the aftermath of war is everywhere. Gary, played by Nathan Lane, was a clown, but now has been assigned to the cleanup crew. Dead bodies have accumulated. He comes from a long line of clowning. It was inherited, just like religions. Miss Nielsen's Janice is an experienced maid. This current mess is not my first massacre. She tutors Gary in the fine art of body disposal. Santo Loquasto designed the set, which is a character unto itself. Dead bodies and limbs are everywhere. Look, that one was really a stud. The slaughtered women and children are hidden under a large tarp. We don't really need to see that. Or do we? Through this bawdy exercise, Judy, which is Taylor Mac's preferred pronoun, well, Judy's going to make a lot of political points about the brutality of mankind and our passive acceptance. Think REM's I Turned Up the Radio morphed into I Sat in My Theater Chair. Perhaps Judy could not hear enough voices screaming out in the artist community. A very successful performer who often performs in drag, Judy was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for a 24-decade history of popular music. That extravaganza skewered the heteronormative narrative of America's history. Never-ending violence and oppression of all minorities were confronted in an anarchistic political convention replete with sequins and titillating humor. That 24-hour show was an extraordinary achievement. Filled with gallows humor, Gary contains many, many laughs. In a metatheatrical way, Judy has created the genre of a fooling. Both the play and the characters who inhabit it are clowns putting on a show. As directed by George C. Wolfe, the best individual moments slay. The messaging is clear and appropriately in your face. Unfortunately, the proceedings occasionally get bogged down like a battalion tramping through a muddy quagmire. The play loses focus and momentum at times. The three performers work hard to bring this outrageousness to life. Mr. Lane's Gary is certainly a fool. As a man, of course he is the most important person and naturally should be in charge. Miss Nielsen's maid is darker, edgier, angrier, and the more accomplished. She is pissed off about her station in life. The performance fuses her trademark acting style and line deliveries with a ludicrous situation. Her character is probably the heart of the play, the window through which people see how the 1% impose themselves on society. Then there is Julie White, who shows us all how to get nominated for a Tony Award. Obviously, all of this talent has enabled Gary to be mounted on Broadway despite its downtown sensibility. In a big traditional venue, Taylor Mac has put our society and our artists on trial. Judy cannot hear you. Listen, laugh, and hopefully be inspired to create art that speaks to today's atrocities. Dead bodies are simply a case of history repeating itself. Next, we have two performances at the New York Theatre Workshop. The first one is a main stage production, 17 Border Crossings. Thaddeus Phillips has traveled all over the world. 
With his wife, Tatiana Malarino, the show's director, he has been working on this particular piece for five years. Seventeen Border Crossings debuted at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2015 and has since been played in 25 countries on five continents. They have revisited their work, taking into account the tenuous nature of borders in our current geopolitical climate. Mr. Phillips' scenic design is simple and effective. He uses a chair, a table, and a 15-foot bar of light to communicate his story and share his observations. In a promising start, he discusses the history of passports. Apparently, you can microwave your passport for 10 seconds so the chip which tracks your movement will be disabled. That discussion is one of many which comes up briefly and is quickly abandoned for the next chapter. There are 17 specific crossings chronicled in this play. The first one occurs on a train in 1999. He is traveling from Hungary to the newly formed Serbia. Playing all the roles, he is a ticket collector and another passenger. That passenger has five suitcases tightly wrapped in blankets, plastic, and duct tape. At one point, the stranger throws them out the window. Obviously, someone is expecting them. What's in there? Why? Never mind, it's time to move on to the next crossing. This type of play structure results in a few interesting tales being lost amidst the acting exercise. Mr. Phillips is a very winning stage presence, comfortable with believable accents in many languages. When I heard, the 11th crossing is from Egypt into Gaza, I had mixed feelings. This particular crossing was in a tunnel where trade happens, so I certainly was interested in the location. I also realized, however, that there were still six more crossings yet to be presented. The unlikely stars of this show are the lighting and sound designers. David Todaro's bar of light can suggest a train car or a police car. The light bar moves up and down as the stories are told in endlessly inventive ways. When you add Robert Kaplowitz's crisp and vivid sound effects, the promise of what this show could be is clear. On a vacation with his family, they are playing on a beach. His son is pretending to drive a boat, while he and his wife bury treasures in the sand, like water bottles and keys. The son is so excited and keeps asking, are we there yet? So he can jump off the boat and start searching. We then hear about a man and his son fleeing Syria into Greece. After a harrowing sea journey, the father is asked, are we there yet? Mr. Phillips commends the father's courage to reply that their journey was just beginning. Moments that attempt to bring depth and meaning are far too infrequent. They are also skimmed over so fast that nothing meaningful has time to stick. Why is this tale being told? Is this a travelogue or a commentary on the world? Without a point of view, 17 border crossings is neither. Another show at the New York Theater Workshop, this one is in their smaller, more experimental space, which is called Next Door at NYTW. The play is called The Appointment. In 2016, I saw the New York premiere of Underground Railroad Game at Ars Nova. That play was written by Jen Kidwell and Scott Shepard in association with the Philadelphia-based troupe Lightning Rod Special a bold commentary on race in American history set in a classroom, the play was uniquely brilliant and traveled the world for years. 
With great anticipation, I had to take in their next production, The Appointment, a musical about abortion. Mr. Shepard is one of the creators of this work, along with composer Alex Bechtel and Eva Steinmetz. Alice York is the lead artist of this heady trip and plays the woman who has booked the appointment of the title. We eventually get to that clinically uncomfortable section, but not before the fetuses blow our minds. This show opens with a chorus of fetuses with umbilical cords hanging from their bellies. Jillian Keyes outfitted this cast with memorably playful and sometimes pointedly disturbing costumes. Hilariously, the unborn babies are in various stages of development. They tease. They play with the audience. Feed us is the message. The early vibe in this show feels like the silly aesthetic of the 1972 Woody Allen film, Everything You Ever Really Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. One year later, the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade made history and legalized abortion. The appointment does not shy away from the seriousness of this still hotly contested law. A fetus asks the audience, Who here has ever had a birthday? Must be nice, is the reply. The dialogue is edgy and surprising for not taking sides. Women who don't want men ruling over their bodies is certainly addressed. Dripping with sarcasm, one of them says, My dream daddy takes all my decisions off my plate and replaces it with applesauce. The scenes at the clinic are completely different in tone. Ms. York is going to be read her state-decreed instructions before the procedure. The mood in the waiting room is more somber and effectively chilly. We have just watched playful fetuses from the inside, and now we are confronting the much scarier outside world. One casualty has a scene wearing a harsh and memorable costume. He sings the lyric, I never learned to walk. In a country deeply divided over the issue of abortion, this musical intends to make you squirm. Boundary pushing is a definite goal. The appointment does seem a bit too long and starts to drag on. The early scenes are so energetic that what follows has trouble matching those highs. The tone shifts between quietly contemplative and goofy tomfoolery. The Thanksgiving dinner is certainly Looney Tunes, but also not as cleverly effective as the preceding material. Next Door at New York Theatre Workshop provides a home for companies and artists who are producing their own work. This outrageously provocative musical should be seen by theatre goers who can equally embrace challenging, offensive, funny, and serious material. I don't believe the appointment will change your opinion on abortion. It will, however, demand you to see the other side of the argument. The last play I want to talk to you about this month is an unearthed chestnut from the Metropolitan Playhouse. It's called The Poor of New York. When referring to the indigenous vultures on Wall Street, the phrase, roguery is concentrated there, would seem a kinder vernacular than others that I have heard. In 1857, successful playwright Dion Boussicot's The Poor of New York premiered. The play begins in 1837, during the time of a financial crisis in the United States. 
based on actions made in the banking system by then President Andrew Jackson, a major recession followed, which lasted well into the mid-1840s. At the start of this very interesting artifact, Gideon Bloodgood's bank is failing, and he's preparing to skip town. A sea captain named Adam Fairweather is about to embark on a long journey. He wants to deposit his family's entire fortune for safekeeping while he is gone. The slimeball banker fraudulently accepts his deposit to add to his coffers before he bolts to Europe. The captain gets wind of his imminent collapse and returns that same evening to get his life savings back. An argument ensues and the captain drops dead. Act 2 and the rest of the play is set amidst the financial crisis of 1857, 20 years later. This one involved economic decline and the bursting of a railroad industry stock bubble. Isn't it fun how we learn from our past mistakes? With the migration of people westward, banks were willing to loan huge sums to railroads, some of which existed only on paper. The slavery versus abolitionist debate was heating up, the job market in the North imploded. The poor of New York doesn't delve into the financial shenanigans of mid-19th century America from a national perspective. Instead, the plot centers around one evil banker and the family he destroyed. This is a tale of a rich man who showers his daughter with every extravagance. Alita Bloodgood is described as having a heart, quote, as hard and dry as a biscuit. As played by Alexandra O'Daly, she is delightfully haughty. All of the poor folk in this story are well-intended, benevolent souls with nary an opportunity to pull themselves out of abject poverty. What's worse is that they remember the days of comfort making their misfortune even more painful. The Metropolitan Playhouse explores American theatrical heritage to illuminate contemporary culture. The Poor of New York opens a window to the 1% as portrayed 160 years ago. Directed and designed by Alex Rowe, this production has been given an inventive staging. I have not seen a manually operated turntable so artfully and effectively incorporated into storytelling since the Mint Theater's 2011 production of Rachel Crothers' A Little Journey. This tiny off-off-Broadway space becomes an office, a street, a tenement, and a home. As always with this company, entrances and exits are dramatically executed and also make sense. Popular songs from the 1850s are performed by the cast during scene changes, which fill out thematic elements. They include, Oh, that I were a man of wealth. Money is a hard thing to borrow. And also an amusing ditty called, I really must be in the fashion. Although very dated in style, the play effectively hits its targets. The actors often speak their thoughts to the audience to help move the plot along. As performed by this solid cast, this historical piece comes alive. A popular hit at the time, Mr. Busico rewrote the details for other productions, such as The Poor of Liverpool, London, or Manchester. Paul Fairweather, the sea captain's son, seems to be the moral center of this play. In a nicely understated way, Luke Hoffmeyer inhabits this man who is desperate to take care of his family while retaining his dignity. 
Teresa Kelsey plays Mrs. Fairweather, and Joe Vetter plays Mrs. Puffy. Both memorably portray the older women who use kindness and generosity of spirit to survive each day. The men have the juicier roles, whether they are the good or bad guys. David Logan Rankin plays the self-dealing badger as an inky conniver. He is tremendously fun to watch as his character evolves. Bob Makasek's Bloodgood is a perfectly detestable banker. The Fairweather's family friend Jonas Puffy sells chestnuts on the street. Beaming with a positive attitude despite the circumstances, John Lonoff is pitch perfect in the role. As regular listeners of this podcast know, I tend to be partial to plays from the past, especially when they are entertainingly realized. Not everyone may be as forgiving to the random asides spoken out loud from these somewhat stock characters. For a glimpse into America's theatrical past and its uncanny mirror to our continuing legacy of financial malfeasance, The Poor of New York is highly recommended. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode of Theater Reviews for My Seat. Next month, three actresses I'm really looking forward to seeing in two different plays, Alice Ripley in The Pink Unicorn and Happy Talk with Susan Sarandon and Marin Ireland. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, please send me an email at theaterreviewsformyseat at comcast.net. That's theater spelled with an E-R, not an R-E at the end. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. Enjoy your theater going and have a great day.